Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's episode is the first of 2019, and to continue our tradition, we'll kick off the year with a look at the top economic policy issues of the day and looking ahead. My guest here in the Brookings Podcast Network studio is a familiar voice, David Wessel, Senior Fellow and Director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy, as well as a regular contributor to this show with his Wessel's Economic Update. Also on today's program, another familiar voice, an always timely review by Molly Reynolds of what's happening in Congress. She covers the speakership election, the rules package, and the vote on Democrats' proposal to reopen the government. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows, including the just-launched podcast called Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, in which host David Dollar and guests explain how our global trading system works and how it affects our everyday lives. Find it on our website, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, on with the interview. David, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you. Good to be with you, Fred. So glad to see you here for the first episode of 2019. So as we get the year started, how would you characterize the state of the U.S. economy? The state of the U.S. economy is pretty darn good. Unemployment's at a 50-year low. Inflation is pretty close to the Fed's target. The economy seems to have a lot of momentum. It took a long time for the recovery after the Great Recession to get going, but it seems to be doing pretty well. The risk, of course, is that this might not continue. There are a number of storm clouds on the horizon. And I want to get to those storm clouds in a minute, but let's stay on the unemployment rate. As you said, it's at a 50-year low. There's another measure of the labor force, which is the labor force participation rate. Can you talk about that and maybe some other indicators of the workforce? Sure. So the first thing to note is there's lots of ways to measure the strength of the labor force. You mentioned the labor force participation rate. That's the fraction of adults who are working or looking for work. There's the fraction of people who are working part-time but tell the government they really, really would prefer a full-time job and so forth. Every measure of the labor market is getting better. They're not all great, but they're getting better. The one that's quite concerning is there still seem to be a lot of people in what economists call the prime ages, 25 to 54, although as a 64-year-old, I'm not real happy with that label. And there's still a large fraction of people, men and women, in that age bracket who aren't working. And a lot of them are not looking for work. And so on one hand, that's unfortunate. It means that they probably don't have the income that they could have. The economy doesn't have their potential. But it's also one of the reasons why people think the economy might be able to go on for a while because there are these workers on the sidelines who we could pull in. What does that have to say then about productivity, wage growth, some of those other indicators that we talk about a lot? One of the biggest mysteries of the U.S. economy right now is why wages aren't rising faster given how tight the labor market seems to be. If you look at surveys of employers, if you walk down the street in many major cities, you see help wanted signs. We know that it's getting easier and easier for people to quit their job and find another one. You would expect at a time like this, wages would be going up much faster than they are. And we really don't know whether that's because the economy has fundamentally changed. That is that employers have more power and workers have less because of the decline of unions, the rise of the gig economy, and all those things? Or is it our wage increases just around the corner? Well, one factor that you mentioned, which is relevant, is the pace of productivity growth. 
Productivity, which is the amount of stuff we make for every hour of work, is the reason we have more stuff than our grandparents, even though we don't work more hours. Productivity growth has been distressingly slow for the last several years, and that may be one reason that wages aren't rising faster. So the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed just over a year ago at the end of 2017. Do you think it's been good for the economy? I think it has helped the economy grow rapidly. If you cut taxes and give people more money, they spend more money. And so one reason that the economy has been so strong is this fiscal oomph that we got from the tax cut. But I think it was a mistake because the economy really didn't need that much fiscal stimulus. We were already doing pretty well. The argument for the tax cut by the proponents was if we cut taxes on business, they'll invest more. If business invests more, we'll have more productivity growth in the future and we'll live happily ever after. So far, that doesn't seem to have happened. Now, I think it's too early to judge, but so far it seems like this surge of investment that the proponents of the tax bill predicted just hasn't come yet. I also think that we have a long-term deficit problem. This made it worse. So I don't think the deficit is a problem today. The government doesn't seem to have any problem borrowing lots of money, much of it from abroad, at historically low interest rates. But we know this can't go on forever, and it's unfortunate that they didn't take this opportunity to do something to fix the trajectory of the federal debt, which is unsustainable. Let's go back to that idea of storm clouds on the horizon for the economy. And there's a lot of talk recently just about that issue. What do you think some of those storm clouds are? Right. I think one reason people are thinking about the next recession is because it's been so long since we had a recession. And even though economists like to say that recoveries don't die of old age, you kind of know that sooner or later one's going to come. What's happened recently is, well, first of all, what's happened to the markets. Both the stock and the bond market seem to have turned pretty gloomy. That can make the economy slow down, but you have to wonder, it's crowdsourcing. Does the market know something that the rest of us don't see, obviously? So that's one big thing. Secondly, despite the president's attempts to suggest that the U.S. economy doesn't need the rest of the world, in fact, we're very interconnected with the rest of the world. And the economies of the rest of the world are slowing down. And China is a big question mark. So the outlook for the global environment has gotten noticeably worse. And then there are some sectors of the U.S. economy which have been weak, housing in particular. So I think there's a lot of reason to be concerned that maybe 2019 will be disappointing. We can't grow as fast as we have been growing forever without some surge in productivity or a lot more workers or something. So a slowdown in growth a modest slowdown would not be a problem. The issue is, are we going to have more than a modest slowdown? And is the market in particular telling us to brace ourselves for that? We recently saw that Jerome Powell, Fed chairman, announced, I think it was a fourth increase in rates at the end of 2018 with some more expected. And yet President Donald Trump has been railing against that plan. Can you talk about monetary policy, what the Fed is doing, and what the president has been saying about it? Sure. So let's take these in two pieces because... The president might be right in his criticism of the Fed, but that doesn't mean it's a wise thing for him to do. As you know, the president is willing to say almost anything on Twitter, and he has been on attack mode when it comes to the Fed. 
I'm not one of these people who thinks this is some violation of the U.S. Constitution or anything. The president can say whatever he wants. We did decide as a society to have an independent central bank because we thought that if politicians set interest rates, they would do it poorly. Mm-hmm. So we delegate it to a bunch of technocrats who are a little bit insulated from the political whims of the moment, who we believe can take the long-term view when it comes to steering the economy. I think the president's comments are counterproductive because they undermine confidence in the Fed. And if the markets think that the Fed is not going to be able to use its best judgment, but is going to be pushed around by the president, well, then that could make the markets even more worried and that could contribute to unproductive changes in the market that could hurt the economy. One thing I think is really significant is that I don't see any signs that Congress is joining the president in this attack on the Fed. And that suggests that for whatever else is going on in Congress, most of the people there, both sides of the aisle, value Fed independence and have not joined the president in assaulting the Fed. Now, that's different from is the Fed following the right policy? There are a lot of people across the political spectrum. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary in Democratic administrations. Larry Lindsey, who was an advisor to Republican presidents and was a member of the Fed board for a while. Both of them have been saying the Fed is making a mistake and there's no reason to raise interest rates now because there's no inflation problem and they wish the Fed would hold off a while longer. So I think there's a really big question about 2019. Is the Fed going to make a mistake, as they often do, and tighten interest rates too much and provoke more of a slowdown in the economy than they want? Or are they going to do too little because they're so cowed by all this criticism in the markets and we end up with an undesirable increase in inflation that leads them to raise interest rates a lot later? So it's a pretty tricky time. For a long time, it was easy for the Fed to say, well, rates are going to go up because when you're starting at zero, there's nowhere for them to go but up. Now we're at the point where, as Jay Powell said in his press conference in December, rates are at the bottom range of neutral. And what he means by that is sometimes the Fed has their foot on the accelerator. That's when they want to make the economy grow faster. And sometimes they have their foot on the brake, which means they want to slow things down. At the moment, they're roughly, in their view, close to having neither foot on either pedal. That may be okay. The question they have to answer is, is that the right strategy? Do we need a little more gas or do we need a little braking? And just so listeners know, when would be the next time that the Fed would meet to consider an interest rate hike? Well, the Fed meets eight times a year. Mm-hmm. The next meeting is this month in January 2019. I think it's unlikely that they'll change interest rates at this meeting. The markets seem to be thinking if they raise interest rates, it'll be either in March or June. But as the Fed chair, Jay Powell, said the other day, they're, quote, data dependent. And that's kind of a jargony way of saying, we have a forecast, we think we're right, we think we might be wrong, so we're going to wait and see if the economy develops as we expect. If it does, we'll raise rates twice in 2019. If it doesn't, we'll do something different. So what are some of the issues in the economy that we haven't already talked about that people should be paying attention to? Well, I think that we've talked a lot about where is the economy right now today and where might it be in six months or 12 months. But one of the things that's disturbing to me is that now that we're 10 years past the Great Recession, now that we're pretty close to full employment, we have not been paying enough attention to chronic economic problems. 
problems that preceded the Great Recession may have been exacerbated by it. So as we discussed, productivity growth is frustratingly slow. We don't really know what the magic formula is for more productivity growth, faster productivity growth, but we do know that one thing we should be doing is investing more, both in the private sector and particularly in the public sector. That means infrastructure, it means R&D, it means education. So I don't think this government, either Congress or the president, has a coherent strategy for what might we be doing to increase productivity growth. Secondly, there's a widening gap between winners and losers in our society. People who have college degrees continue to do better than people who just have a high school diploma. Some parts of the country are booming and other parts are really suffering, been left behind, ravaged by the forces of globalization and technology, and there's still persistent gaps in the earnings of and potential of blacks and whites. We know from recent economic research that the chances that your kids will do better than you are frustratingly low. So all those things about the disparities in our society really get a lot of attention here at Brookings, but I'm afraid don't get enough attention from the people who make public policy. And although there are lots of interesting experiments going on here and there, there's really not enough being done to wrestle with this. And I think this is a fundamental problem. Not only is it unfair, but I think it's tearing apart our society and contributing to the polarization that gets so much attention. Well, David, if there were one policy idea for the economy right now that you could just wave your wand and implement, what would that be? So I think it's a good question and kind of afraid to answer it. (laughs) But I think what I would like to see is that the Congress and the president would find a way to do a big, what's sometimes called a grand bargain on the budget. And this grand bargain would do three things. One, it would reduce future projected deficits on the tax side and on the spending side, particularly spending on entitlement programs. Two, it would make money available for the kind of investment we need so that the next generation and generations of follow live better than we do. So that means spending money or creating tax policies that foster investment, both by businesses, public investment, education, stuff like that. And third, it would be a great opportunity to cope with climate change at the same time. So one way to do these things is to impose some kind of carbon tax, which raises money in the future, but gives us some money now that we could use for the priorities that I think we're underspending on. Well, David, I want to thank you for spending your time with us today, and I look forward to more of your economic updates in the year ahead. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, Fred. You can learn more about David Wessel and the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy on our website, brookings.edu. And now here's Molly Reynolds following governance studies with a look at what's happening in Congress. I'm Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. The 116th Congress officially convened this week, bringing the first Democratic majority in the House since 2010 and a slightly larger, by two seats, Republican majority in the Senate. A record number of women will serve in the new Congress, though at nearly a quarter of its voting membership, that figure still lags significantly behind the overall share of women in the U.S. population. 
The 116th Congress will also see a number of demographic firsts, including the first Muslim women to serve in the House and the first Latina women from Texas, a state with a large Hispanic population. The first day of a new Congress runs according to a set order of business. In the House, the first major activity is the selection of the Speaker, a race won by Nancy Pelosi, but only after several weeks of post-election uncertainty and deal-making. Central to her efforts to sew up sufficient support was a deal to limit top leaders in the House Democratic Caucus, the Speaker, the Majority Leader, and the Majority Whip, to three terms of service in those positions. A fourth term could be sought, but would require the support of two-thirds of the Democratic Caucus. That proposal will come before the Democratic Caucus for a vote in the coming weeks, but striking it was enough to get Pelosi the votes that she needed. In the end, 15 Democrats did not support Pelosi, with some voting present and others casting votes for a number of alternative candidates, including Representative Sherry Bustos and Senator Tammy Duckworth. The Speaker, after all, does not need to be a member of the House itself. When the House voted on the Speaker, it was one vote shy of its full membership, with only 434 members. That's because one final House race remains uncalled in North Carolina's 9th District. The Republican in that race, Mark Harris, leads in the current vote tally, but allegations of absentee ballot fraud perpetrated by a political operative with connections to Harris's campaign have led to an ongoing investigation by the North Carolina State Board of Elections. The board, however, was forced by a three-judge panel to disband in late December for reasons unrelated to the allegations in the 9th District. As a result, the resolution of the race, including whether new primary and general elections for the seat will be held, will drag on for at least several more weeks. The House also turned to its so-called opening day rules package, which sets the rules of the chamber for the next two years. This is an important day one activity because the rules of the previous session of the House do not carry over to the next one. The Senate, on the other hand, is a continuing body with two-thirds of its members and its rules persisting from session to session. The Democrats' rules package makes a number of important procedural changes for the new Congress. Some, like the elimination of a Republican-created rule limiting the number of terms that a member can chair a House committee, have the potential to create more effective committees. Others, such as the creation of a new consensus calendar and a change making it slightly easier to force bills to the floor using the discharge petition, are intended to give rank-and-file members more influence in the chamber, though it's unclear how big of an effect they will actually have. Still others involve the budget. Two budgetary rules changes that have received particular attention involve the return of rules the House has used before. One, the PAYGO rule, prevents certain legislation from increasing the deficit and has drawn objections from some Democrats who argue that it will make it more difficult for Congress to adopt major progressive priorities like Medicare for All. At the end of the day, however, the PAYGO rule included in the rules package is easily waivable. A separate, similar rule enshrined in law and thus outside the reach of Democrats' first-day rules package is a bigger constraint on potential deficit-increasing legislation. The second major change to budget rules involves the Gephardt Rule, which allows the House, upon completion of some other specified budgetary action, to automatically send the Senate a measure to raise the debt limit without taking a separate vote to do so. This slightly smooths the path to avoiding a default in the federal debt by providing legislators a way to raise the debt ceiling without having to cast a specific, potentially politically difficult vote. Democrats' final major action of the day was to pass two measures designed to reopen the parts of the federal government that have been shuttered since December 22nd. One would fund the vast majority of shuttered federal agencies, including the Agriculture, Transportation, Interior, and Housing and Urban Development Departments, and the EPA, 
through the end of September at levels negotiated on a bipartisan basis in the Senate last year. The second would fund the Department of Homeland Security at current levels through February 8th, giving Congress and the president additional time to negotiate over controversial funding for a border wall. Democrats were joined by a handful of Republicans, largely from moderate districts, in approving both bills. Both measures have now been sent to the other side of the Capitol, where action on them remains unlikely for now, as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has stated repeatedly that he will not bring up any measures to end the partial shutdown unless President Trump has indicated that he will sign them. The White House, for its part, said it would veto both bills, leaving Congress and the president no closer to resolving their disagreements. Beyond reopening the government, the House has plenty of work ahead in the weeks to come. A number of new committee chairs have begun to announce upcoming hearings on issues like health care, climate change, and the Trump administration's family separation policy. Democrats' first major legislative priority, the bill numbered H.R. 1, deals with campaign finance reform, voting rights, gerrymandering, and strengthening ethics laws. While the Senate is unlikely to even consider it as a full, comprehensive package, the choice by Democrats to tackle these issues as their first initiative signals their importance to the party. Indeed, with divided control of Washington, this kind of messaging is likely to be much of what's happening in Congress. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holster. The producers are Brennan Hoven and Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Intersections, hosted by Adriana Pita, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.